This program is made possible by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Campfires is a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize's board and the Federation of State Humanities Councils in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and the humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work. The Campfires Initiative is also supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the winter of 1417, an unemployed papal secretary turned book hunter named Poggio Bracciolini discovered a copy of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things in a remote monastery. The story of how this astonishing poem would cause the world to swerve in a new direction is a testament to the power of the written word. In his book, The Swerve, How the World Became Modern, Stephen Greenblatt writes, The finding of a lost book does not ordinarily figure as a thrilling event, but behind that one moment was the arrest and imprisonment of a pope, the burning of heretics, and a great culture-wide explosion of interest in pagan antiquity. The act of discovery fulfilled the life's passion of a brilliant book hunter, and that book hunter, without ever intending or realizing it, became a midwife to modernity. Stephen Greenblatt is a John Cogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. He's author of 12 books, including The Swerve, which won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. He's also author of Shakespeare's Freedom and Will in the World, and many others. He's a general editor of Norton Anthology of English Literature and Norton Shakespeare. His honors include the 2016 Holberg Prize from the Norwegian Parliament, and as I mentioned, the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. And uh, Stephen Greenblatt, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Tom. I wonder if you would uh, start with us uh, where you did in the, the preface. Your discovery of this book, the discovery which is the subject of this book, which is which was very important in your life, uh, found in the discarded bin at Yale for 10 cents. <laughs> yes, I still have the copy uh, with the 10 cents marked on the cover. Uh, was a, a, a lucky chance. I used to go ferreting around in the... Uh, in the uh, used book bins uh, at the the end of the year, and I bought it not because I was interested so much in the book. I'd never heard of the book, but but because I liked the cover. Uh, So the cover was uh, arresting and strange, and I thought, all right, I'll, I'll invest 10 cents. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and this was uh, this was especially impactful to you because of your your history. Uh, t- tell us about your your mother. She she had uh, you know I think all of us think about death. She certainly it uh, it was ramped up for her. She thought about it a lot. She did. I, I was I'm very fortunate, Tom, in this in that I had actually uh, no uh, death in my childhood, uh, unlike so many people. Uh, but my mother when she was young, lost a sister, and uh, she never got over it, uh, was anxious about death and dying, was anxious about her own death, and uh, but haunted by this uh, loss of a young sister whom she loved. And she managed to 
deal with it, but only by more or less constantly thinking about it and and uh, looking back on it. Of course, when I was a child, I didn't know to judge it one way or the other. Looking back on it, I realized I had a slightly peculiar upbringing because of the nature of the anxiety that my mother was constantly conveying. So all of that's only in the background because when I uh, finally picked up and read this book over the summer uh, that I had bought uh, randomly, I discovered it was all about trying to deal with fear of death. Mm. So it actually had a more powerful impact on me than than uh, uh, than it should have had, as it were. Yeah, as a you know, as a young man, you didn't you didn't know that your mother was working through some things. I guess processing the the death of her of her sister. Um, it, it went to the uh, went to the extent that she would suddenly stop on the sidewalk and have you feel her pulse. This was this was yeah, she, quite she the thing. was afraid that. She was afraid about herself constantly. I mean, she worried, fretted a lot about uh, her uh, various ailments, which she had some, uh, as we all do. Uh, but uh, she wanted me to share <laughs> uh, this anxiety, uh, maybe to relieve it or in any case to, to uh, accept the burden of it. And I, I love my mother, I, uh, uh, and I love her memory, but this was probably not the best uh, strategy for raising a child. Mm. Uh, so it was actually a, uh, the book, the ancient book that I read, which was just a book of ancient physics, um, surprised me by dealing so directly with trying to relieve you of this constant burden of anxiety. Yeah, this this is a two thousand year old uh, poem essentially. It, you know, it's it's a poem about physics and and many other things. Um, wh- what was its effect on you? What uh, what were the central ideas that had a big effect on your life? I mean, first and foremost, Tom, I had that feeling that uh, many of your listeners, many of us, have with one book or another in our lives. I mean, which is suddenly out of the blue and surprise, to one's surprise, it's speaking directly to you. So I, uh, if, if you haven't had that experience in your life, uh, you won't know entirely what I'm talking about, but it's very strange, and, and actually m- most people have had it, something that seems that has been written a very long time ago, in this case several thousand years ago, uh, by a writer you've never heard of, in this case, uh, out of a world that you don't really understand very well, it seems to be a letter written directly to you, and it had that effect on me. I, uh, not all of it, uh, but uh, I, when I came to the passages that that directly addressed the uh, thoughts that I was having, feelings I had, it was really as if someone understood me and and was addressing concerns that I had. As I say, you can have it with the Bible or with Shakespeare or with Franz Kafka, <laughs> in my case with Lucretius, uh, and it's a very powerful experience, uh, and a strange one. And so, uh, uh, one of the, the central uh, focuses of your your book here is the the rediscovery of this book and the effect that it had. Um, and you go on to say that uh, you know you, you can't put the entire Renaissance on on this one book, but it did have an effect in the world, certainly in your life and, and many others. Uh, I want to start with. Um, Lucretius's view of how we should face death, and it's it, 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 I can boil it down maybe to a ridiculous extreme. Don't worry about it. Yes, that's, 
<laughs> That's true. Don't worry, be happy, uh, as the song goes, was was his mantra, though he's a rather complicated uh, man with with a uh, very uh, rich uh, philosophical vein. But that that <laughs> that will do. Don't worry, be happy for what he thought probably you should uh, uh, you should focus on. He, it's a strange. I mean, in some ways, a very familiar argument. I mean, the, um, you're not going to be around uh, forever, and you're not certainly not going to be around after you're gone, after you're dead. And the idea that you'd spend a lot of time worrying about it uh, seemed to him uh, actually to have the effect mainly of just poisoning everything in your ordinary life, which he thought shouldn't be poisoned because it was the only life you're likely to have. And this is especially juxtaposed against the religious world of uh, of uh, you know the time of the rediscovery here in the 1400s and uh, you know uh, even in some ways for our world this is pretty radical isn't it that r- religious thought for to take one example uh, focuses a lot on death preparing for death preparing for an afterlife yeah. it was true in his own pagan world of course as well i mean first and foremost lucretius who was writing about the time of of julius caesar so before uh, before Christ um, and in a pagan world, was surrounded by people who thought a lot about um, the, the the other world, the afterlife, the gods, how to appease the gods and make them happy, how to how to try to assure oneself success in life, and how to avoid pushing rocks up a hill forever or or uh, thirsting uh, for water you're never going to get. All the things that pagans imagine might be in hell. Um, and so he was first and foremost addressing that. But when the book came back in the early 15th century, it came into a world uh, that, in a way, even more intensely than the pagan world had uh, thought a lot about, more or less constantly, about the afterlife and how to negotiate your relationship with the afterlife. Hmm. So it, it did represent something that was an alternative to what Poggio Bracciolini and anyone in his world would have thought. I don't want to get to Poggio Bracciolini, a fascinating character, um, and uh, want to get into talking about that world, uh, Bracciolini's world. Um, but uh, more on the effects of of Lucretius when when it was rediscovered, and then it took some time, of course, to get out there and it began to recirculate again in the world. Um, Lucretius had a, had a big effect, right, on Galileo, Freud, Darwin, Einstein, uh, Jefferson. I was I was interested to, to uh, read you talking about Jefferson and Lucretius's effect on him. This is all true, but Tom, it was a very slow-acting, uh, either medicine or poison, depending whether you like it or not. Uh, that is to say, when it first came back, it surprised and uh, unsettled a small number of people. But um, I think most people would have thought it was either wicked or crazy or both. Uh, so it was only uh, quite gradually and by a set of strange roots that that um, it it had the ultimate impact that it did and one of the things that interests me one of the things that's striking perhaps to think about in relation to the humanities is how it's possible for ideas that are really unacceptable uh, to survive in a world that's designed actually to for the most part to make sure they don't survive and in the in this case this strange poem that came back in 1417 and that now actually seems to define a lot of things that a lot of people believe about the world 
uh, came into a world completely hostile to its fundamental ideas, mm. but nonetheless the work managed to circulate and survive mm. until the point at which it hit people like Galileo or uh, Newton or uh, Darwin very hard. Let's take a break. When we come back, I wanted to have you uh, tell me the story of uh, Paolo Bartolini uh, and his discovery. This was in a, in a German, remote German monastery, I believe, and, and uh, uh, Bartolini was a book hunter. I want to have you tell me about that uh, as well, uh, the discovery of, of this, uh, what, it, what became very influential uh, text, Lucretius's On the Nature of Things. Uh, more with uh, Stephen Greenblatt. His book, which won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, was called The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. More following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. If you're asking yourself why your customer isn't buying your product or service, then maybe you don't know your customer. Excellent companies have regular dialogues with their customer. Customer relationships and service should be a part of every employee's responsibility. For example, a hospital system recently trained its housekeeping staff, the people who clean the patient's rooms, on how to better listen to patients because they're there with the patient. Your value is defined by your customers, not your marketing people or strategic planners. Customers tell us why they buy, and we just have to listen. Create excellence in your company by really listening to your customers and knowing how to bring value to them. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean, continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Devour Utah, a monthly magazine devoted to covering Utah's dining and drink scene with a spotlight on cooking, local happenings, and libations. Available at newsstands or online at devourutah.com. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We are talking with Stephen Greenblatt, a renowned scholar. He is a professor at Harvard University, author of many books, including Pulitzer Prize winner, National Book Award winner, The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. Uh, Stephen Greenblatt, before we get into uh, Poggio Bracciolini, this, the, the book hunter who just rediscovered uh, Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, the title, The Swerve, this, this I understand, comes from Lucretius. It does. Uh, Lucretius had a, a problem in, uh, to solve, which was how does anything happen in the world? How does change take place? Uh, he believed that that uh, the world was made up out of uh, little tiny particles. He called them the seeds of things. Uh, the Greeks called them atoms. Uh, he thought they were made up out of atoms and emptiness and nothing else. And um, he believed that the uh, atoms were always inclined to simply fall in a straight line. Uh, so the question he asked himself was, if that's the case, why doesn't everything just keep falling, as it were? Why does anything happen? And he came up with the very peculiar notion that there must be a single moment somewhere in the, the beginning of the universe of a swerve, an atomic swerve. All that had to happen was one atom had to bump into another atom, 
uh, <laughs> and then everything would start happening. Uh, it would happen at random. It would happen uh, over infinite amount of time. But it would start happening with atoms bumping into each other, connecting, disconnecting, and so forth. But everything depended, uh, he thought, on a, on an initial swerve. Hmm. And you're saying the the rediscovery and reeffect in the world of the the Lucretius's ideas is 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 a swerve. Exactly. Yeah. That it happened. Uh, well, maybe not exactly accidentally, but to some extent accidentally. Something came back that no one expected to come back. Uh, a whole notion of the world, atoms and emptiness and nothing else, that idea, those ideas hadn't been floating around. It popped back into the world uh, in 1417, and then it bumped into other things and started to, to a chain reaction, as it were. I'd like to have you tell me about uh, Poggio Bracciolini. I called him Paolo before the break, Poggio Bracciolini. Um, 1417, he's an unemployed papal secretary, um, unemployed because uh, the Pope John the Twenty Third um, was deposed, and this uh, <laughs> was nagging in my mind, and, and uh, so I, I looked it up. So there's another John the Twenty Third, right? That we know from there is from, from the twentieth century, from my childhood. Uh, the, I think, to my perspective, quite wonderful uh, man from Roncalli, His name was uh, who who actually was responsible for Vatican II. Uh, so still quite a controversial figure in the church. Uh, but he did a very strange thing uh, in John the, John, the, our John the Twenty Third, as it were, the, uh, the 20th century one, which was he took a name that had been taken out of circulation, as it were, uh, that had been put on the shelf, and no one, because it was so poisonous, no one had called himself John <laughs> uh, since the uh, early 15th century. In the, in the papacy, because uh, the the first John the twenty third had been deposed, uh, and the name had he had been called a anti pope hmm. uh, by the church, and the name had uh, had been taken away. So this, so our John the twenty third, as you phrase him, uh, this was purposeful. He he, he took an anti pope's name. Well, I, th- I not purposeful in the sense that I think he identified <laughs> with the sinister original. Uh, but but he decided the name John was a good name. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> and why not? Yeah. Uh, it was it was about time to to, to uh, take it back. Mm. So tell me about John the the original John the the twenty third. He was he was deposed. Why? Well, he was accused of an innumerable number of awful things. Uh, of course, we don't. It's a long time ago, and we don't have uh, we we have a record of what his enemies said he had done, uh, but we don't have a hard and uh, clear evidence of of uh, what he did though he was evidently an extremely uh, dubious fellow uh, he had made he was a very clever man i mean he had he had, had a quite impressive career from a family of pirates uh, in uh, in the south of italy uh, from procida near naples uh, and he had risen in the papal hierarchy himself and eventually had become pope Though there were always rumors swirling around that uh, he became pope after the previous pope visited him and got terribly ill and so forth and so on. I mean, there were it was apparently a risky strategy to have dinner with him, uh, or so it was said by his enemies. And then eventually, I mean, the the eventually for very complicated reasons. I mean, the, uh, the, the his church uh, uh, rebelled against him 
um, the, the cardinals of his church, the princes of his church, rebelled against him and, and uh, toppled him. But he, he uh, made a kind of elaborate plea bargain where they dropped the, the worst charges against him and only accused him of murder, rape, uh, corruption, financial corruption of various kinds. Very hard to understand what the what the charges they dropped were, since the charges against him that remained were are terrible. Uh, any case, he he uh, was deposed and spent uh, the rest of his life uh, in Florence. Uh, his tomb is still in Florence. You can still see it. it's quite beautiful hmm. uh, in the baptistry in Florence. But he didn't die as pope. So uh, that's the reason Bracciolini is an unemployed papal uh, secretary. You write that, uh, uh, you know, on his journey to, to Germany, uh, he became a book hunter. Um, you write that most people in that society, 1417, you could uh, look at them and, and uh, you know, place them. You could identify them, where they fit in society. But Bracciolini would have been harder to, to place. Yes, certainly in, in, in Germany in the early 15th century, I think people would have had great difficulty looking at him, figuring out who on earth he was. I mean, in general, really, it's only in in the 20th century that uh, are uh, and and afterwards that you can't tell entirely who people are by their costumes. Uh, we we've managed to democratize not only in America but to some extent around the world uh, who whom we are, what we what we think we are, are doing, and whom we serve. Uh, in, in a way, it's the triumph of the blue jeans, as it were, uh, since the billionaire and the worker all wear uh, similar clothes. But that wasn't the case in the 15th century. Everyone, it was a, a time in which people usually were very clear about whom they were. And I think um, it actually, in Poggio Bracciolini, it was an odd character because being an apostolic secretary as he was in the church, he would have, uh, and, and, and deposed one because the Pope's, uh, retinue was all fired. Uh, it just wasn't clear where he fit any longer. He probably himself didn't quite know where he fit any longer. He wasn't. He wasn't a, a, a cleric. He wasn't a priest. Uh, but he wasn't. Uh, didn't have an obvious occupation. He had time on his hands, which people. Did, but he wasn't an enormously wealthy man. He wasn't a military fellow. So he was just doing something very strange in the early 16th century, namely early 15th century, namely he was looking for old books. Why, very few people did anything like that. Hmm. Uh, it became important, of course. What, what was it about book hunting? What, what did that mean to Bracciolini? It meant, in some sense, everything, or it was the, the, the moral compass in, a, in, in his life. You'd think working for the Church would give you moral compass enough, but as I've said, the Church he worked for was a quite corrupt place, and he himself knew it. I mean, wrote an incredibly powerful account of its corruptions, and he uh, he had had an experience. He had experience as a young man, uh, already in his late teens, of getting fired up about the idea that was floating around Italy at the time that there must be uh, books from the pagan world, the ancient world, when Rome was still a marvelous place as they imagined it when when the the Roman Empire was at its first the republic and then the empire was at its height there must be works that survived from that that we don't know yet that we haven't discovered and that we can find and he was part of a small group of people who went in search of those books uh thinking that they might have made it through uh the 
difficult passage from the ancient world uh, to the early 15th century. What was it about uh, antiquity that, that fascinated Bracciolini and others like him, perhaps, in, in that time, the, the 15th century? Well, it's an odd thing to say, but first and foremost, they adored the language. They loved Latin, uh, Latin as it was used at the moment of uh, its of classical purity. I mean, the moment of Cicero or uh, or Ovid or Caesar. So they were besotted with the idea of the language. But then, of course, that was bound up with other things. They thought that the world then must have been a better place, more orderly, wiser less corrupt, uh, clearer in its vision of what mattered and what didn't matter. And we can have uh, some skepticism about that now. We found a lot about the ancient world. I mean, in some ways better, in some ways a lot worse than anything we know since. But they believed in any case it might be the the time in which you could finally, uh, in which humans had finally figured out uh, how to be fully human. Mm. Uh, and they had only lost that in, in the view of Poggio and others in the chaos and corruption of of the Italy that they knew. Uh, so it's in a remote German monastery that uh, Bracciolini comes across this, this manuscript, which I, I imagine would have been copied. Um, yes, it certainly would have been copied because nothing could survive from that long ago. So it was a copy of a copy of a copy, right. maybe even more uh, lines of transmission before then, but it, but it, he, he, the the excitement was the feeling that he was getting back to that moment of purity. It's a little bit would be a little bit like us if we feel that well we've lost our way, feeling that there's something at that moment, of, let's say, of the Federalist Papers or of the of the of the uh, uh, of the first of the writers of our Constitution that was clearer, more coherent, uh, more truthful, and then finding that you could get back there. That and he was off looking. They had already looked around a lot in places in Italy, uh, but they thought, well, there might be places more remote. In, and he happened to find himself in Germany in the winter of 1417, and so he started looking in, in monasteries in Germany. Now, he couldn't have known what effect the, the, this poem would have on the world. What, what did he think he had? I, I mean, he had heard of the name Lucretius because uh, Lucretius' poem was praised by uh, by writers who had survived from the ancient world, and particularly by Ovid, and it's mentioned also, he's mentioned in a, very admiringly by Cicero. So the way in which this worked, Tom, was that the book hunters looked carefully through the books that had survived from the ancient world, uh, or that they had recovered, and they looked for titles and names of authors whom they hadn't yet found, and then they went off in search of them. So he did have a moment, he had a moment, a sort of aha moment, in which he thought he saw Lucretius de Rerum Natura on the nature of things, and he, I think, knew he had a kind of good mental list of what might be out there. There were other books, of course, he found as well, but he noticed that he remembered that that uh, Cicero had said it was one of the great works in the world, that Ovid had said it would last forever, and so forth and so on. These are writers he cared about, and then he he realized that he had found something important that mm-hmm. it hadn't something that hadn't been discussed, seen in circulation, as far as he knew, for centuries. Mm. No, it's, uh, it's, it's surprising, ironic, you could say it, that uh, monasteries uh, were shelters 
for books that had ideas that were antithetical to to the church that monastery was serving. Absolutely. It's one of the absolutely fascinating aspects of this story. These books weren't discovered, as it were, under rocks or in in the way that the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Nag Hammadi uh, uh, codices were found in in jars hidden in the desert. They were found in libraries and monasteries. So the, the monks had taken care of them. They just hadn't circulated them, but they had uh, uh, what was what survived from the ancient world, from the pagan world, survived almost entirely because uh, monks copied them uh, and copied copies of them and copied copies of those copies. Uh, uh, so uh, there were there were crucial moments throughout the, uh, the the dark ages and the early Middle Ages in which. Uh, monks decided for various reasons that they wanted to ha- keep copies of these works. Uh, I want to pause right there. You you give some fascinating details of, of a monk's life, what it must have been like to be a monk, uh, copying books all day. Uh, apparently, uh, they would write complaints in the, in the margins sometimes. They did. Uh, this paper, this parchment, they were, of course, writing on animal hides. This parchment is hairy. Someone uh, <laughs> incompetently had done it, so there was... They hadn't taken all the hair off, so it was actually incredibly annoying to try to write on it. Or, or their hands hurt, or their bottoms hurt uh, from sitting in the in the chair so long. Or uh, they they uh, cursed people who might uh, think of filching the book, or and so forth and so on. I mean, they were they were uh, uh, very much uh, aware of what they were doing and of the difficulty. Uh, that they were facing, and of course, often they didn't. They didn't know what they were going to copy. They they didn't make the choice themselves. The monastic librarian would have assigned them the task, uh, or they would have asked to do something, but they weren't sure what they were getting into. And and uh, in the case of Lucretius's poem, this is a long project. It's many, 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 many verses. So you would have had to sit there and do it over and over and over again for hours. Uh, writing something you barely understood often in many cases. So you can understand this uh, as perhaps a religious service, uh, copying religious texts. Why were the monks copying uh, secular texts like that? Well, this is an interesting question, Tom. I mean, they they were copying secular texts because actually human uh, interest, human curiosity is uh, even in... Even in uh, difficult times is probably broader than we uh, make it out to be. The monasteries decided fairly early that uh, that the pagan texts had things that may be useful for us, that may be things, whether they're, they're ideas or they're turns of phrase, that we shouldn't simply destroy the past. Of course, this was a crucial decision, and it's by no means universal. A great deal was lost. And in all cultures, it's possible for huge amounts to be destroyed. But the uh, the Catholic monks uh, in many places in Europe made an absolutely fundamental decision, that uh, a life-enhancing decision from my perspective, that, that uh, they wouldn't simply blanket destroy things that didn't correspond to their immediate beliefs, that they would think that they would save them. And they had prestige value. For that reason, uh, and they were copied. Not always, and not always well, but they they uh, they survived. 
I just wanted to read uh, one of these curses for someone who would not return a book. Uh, it begins, For him that stealeth or borroweth or return not this book from its owner, let it change into a serpent in his hand and rend him. Let him be struck with palsy and all his members blasted. <laughs> yeah, it should, should keep you from stealing it. But yes. on the other hand, we know these books were stolen all the time. And in fact, by people like Padre Bracciolini. <laughs> so they, they, uh, it, it was always risky to, to loan your book to, especially to a curious uh, Italian humanist who wanted to see them and copy them. In, in fact, the monk uh, in, the, in the monastery, the librarian in the monastery where Padre found, Lucretius evidently wouldn't loan him the copy. That's why what we have is a copy of that copy. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we're talking about copies, painstaking copies, uh, you know, all day, you know, every day, uh, sun up to sundown, monks copying books, and, uh, you know, thank heaven they did. We, we, we have them. But um, it, I was contrasting that in my mind to today's world, digital world. Uh, so uh, things are a lot more available, but I, I wonder if we value things as much. Well, I think it goes in two different directions, uh, Tom. On the one hand, we do have access availability to almost everything in a kind of wild way that would, would have been almost unimaginable, would have been completely unimaginable, in fact, to anyone in the world that I'm writing about. Uh, on the other hand, first of all, our, our digital records are much less secure however much got destroyed in fire and flood and everything else from the ancient world, actually parchment and even paper has a surprisingly long life. Uh, digital uh, records are fantastic in terms of access, but actually quite unstable. I know this from one thing, as many of us do, because I have many things on old floppy disks that I couldn't possibly access at this point. And we also know that there are, are people who are trying, um, sinister people who are trying to figure out how to erase our, our, either hack into or erase our digital records altogether. So it's a, it's a much riskier mode of transmission. What was, what's written down on parchment has a weird way of surviving for a very long time. So that's one thing. And the other thing to say, a little bit, as you just suggested, is if you have so much access to everything, it's actually difficult to know where to start or stop or how to distinguish between those things that are that are that are probably true and those things that seem preposterous and false but they all seem to exist suddenly on the same plane what do you what do you you must deal with this with your students you you know you teach humanities and there's so much of course i, th- I think you you know you concern in shakespeare and, and and some others but uh, in in general what do you tell your students where to where to start where to concentrate yeah, well, we, one tries for one thing to, to get one's students to understand that the fact that it's in circulation online or whatever doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> it, that you should begin to try to think about how how communities of trust are established that enable you to to think that there's a, a likelihood that this thing is is true or a likelihood that this thing is fraud, fraudulent and untrue. I mean, that's putting aside questions of what counts from a literary point of view or not, um, but just the simple distinction. I think one thing that's happening in our culture that's alarming um, is that is that it becomes increasingly difficult for people to distinguish between uh, those things they can trust and those things they can't. And so everything seems equally either either equally true or equally uh, hypothetical and false. 
what, when I was young, you were, there were a relatively small number of television networks and, and newspapers that you sort of relied on to be more or less accurate. I mean, you knew they, they could also make mistakes, but you thought that they were being basically responsible. But now we tend to live in very, very different uh, communities of, of re- in which we can uh, have difficulty distinguishing between truth and falsehood. Yeah, it's, it's being called the post-factual world, which I hope is I not mean, the, true. The, the, in relation to what we're talking about, Tom, the interesting thing is that, to come back to, to Lucretius, when, when the word came back from the ancient world that the universe was made up out of atoms and emptiness and nothing else, most people would have thought this was obviously preposterous and false. What about angels? What about demons? Uh, what about all those things that don't correspond? What about the soul? What about things that don't correspond to atoms and emptiness? And so this would have been an outrageous idea, as outrageous as many of the crazy things that float around on the Internet now. So the question is, what, what happened? How did, those, how did these, this, this wild theory about the world survive? And where did it go? Uh, how did it eventually become part of the way in which, uh, for at least many scientists, this is the way the world is understood. Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Let's <laughs> let that's and and that's of course you you treat that uh, in in your book. Let's take a break. I want to come back and and uh, treat that. You you talk about how this uh, flowered in a certain way in in the Renaissance. The the, the Renaissance was was all about uh, beauty and pleasure, and not just in the arts. You you write. Uh, and that's uh, that's very uh, central to Lucretius's thought. Let's uh, have more with uh, Stephen Greenblatt, author of *The Swerve*, winner of the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award. Following this break, it's 2010. High-speed trading bots sent the market into freefall. This market is dropping precipitously. Several hundred billion dollars vanished. Information has a speed. Like nine, seven, nine seconds. Six thousand miles per second. Fifty milliseconds. On the next Radio Lab, we ask: Is that speed leaving us behind, or leading us to glory? Join us Tuesday morning at ten on Utah Public Radio. Hi, this is Ari Shapiro from All Things Considered, and you are about to discover my secret identity. When I'm not reporting for NPR, I tour and record with a band called Pink Martini. For the holidays, I will be both host and performer in a concert called Pink Martini, Joy to the World, a multicultural holiday spectacular. Coming here from NPR Music. Tuesday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. And the full holiday schedule is on our website, upr.org. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Pulitzer Prize's Centennial Campfires Initiative for collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and KCPW. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have with us renowned scholar Stephen Greenblatt. He is author of uh, many books, including the book we're talking about, the Swerve, How the World Became Modern. Uh, this is winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. In the winter of 1417, an unemployed papal secretary turned book hunter named Poggio Bracciolini discovered a copy of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things in a Remote Monastery. And in part, this book is the story of how this astonishing poem would cause the world to swerve in a new direction. It's a testament to the power of the 
written word. You can join us here at 800-826-1495 if you'd like to join the conversation, or upraxcess at gmail.com is our uh, email. We have uh, Stephen Greenblatt with us uh, for another uh, 12 or 13 minutes uh, in this uh, conversation. Uh, I'm looking, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, at, at, on your website, stephengreenblatt.com. There's a guide to this book, The Swerve. I, th- I thought this was phrased very well, so I wanted to give credit to the guide. On the Nature of Things could be thought of as a poem that went viral, to use a, a modern modern term. So I wanted to get into talking about how this this happened. It wouldn't have been immediate, right? The, the Bracciolini discovers this fairly slowly. It, it gets reintroduced to, to the world, but it did have a big effect. It wasn't immediate, both because, uh, of course, this is a world without... Uh, Xerox machines, let alone uh, or, or the printing press, uh, so uh, making copies is not easy, um, and it also uh, wouldn't go viral because it was dangerous and was understood early on uh, to be dangerous. The ideas were understood to be potentially toxic because they were uh, they were difficult, perhaps impossible to reconcile. Uh, with religious doctrine, uh, and it was always risky to go in that direction. So the peculiar nature of the work, and it's I think quite interesting, is that that uh, certain things could be peeled out. In the, uh, you could ignore uh, the most dangerous ideas, but just concentrate on the beautiful verses about pleasure, about the springtime, about uh, love and so forth. Or, uh, in a way, more interesting to me, perhaps, is is that certain artists could try to imagine the world that Poggio was describing, or that Lucretius, rather, was describing, and that Poggio recovered. But imagine that world in paintings or in poems that didn't make truth claims. That's the interesting thing about much of the work uh, in the humanities, or at least the work in in uh, literature or in art, is that it doesn't make a claim to be doctrine. It's a way in which the imagination can play itself out uh, without risking uh, violating whatever uh, the the uh, the rules are. So, for example, you get painters long before you get in 1600. You get someone who actually embraces these ideas, Giordano Bruno, and gets burned at the stake for them. But long before that happened, you get painters like Pierre de Cosimo and Botticelli in uh, in uh, Italy who are painting versions of these ideas, but it's much less risky, uh, much safer to try to do so as imaginative propositions rather than doctrinal propositions. It, it, it was dangerous for a while to espouse these ideas, right? Do people get burned at the stake? Extremely dangerous. It was you. You didn't. You you uh, didn't want to risk this if you wanted to live a long, safe life. And in the case of the remarkable uh, Dominican Giordano Bruno, who did espouse these ideas, who did say, "Yes, I, in effect, believe that this is these ideas are true." He was he was uh, uh, imprisoned, interrogated, uh, tortured, and eventually taken to the Campo di Fiori and. Rome and burned at the stake. But before he was burned at the stake, uh, Bruno said something, said to have said something quite remarkable, which was that you who are doing this to me are more frightened than I am. 
that is to say, he saw that that uh, or that this uh, strategy of trying to uh, deal with these threatening ideas by killing people was actually the expression of fear, and that those people were ultimately going to lose, mm. as they did. One, I'm quoting from your preface, this struck me. Uh, you talk about the Renaissance, and, and you say that uh, culture in the wake of antiquity is best epitomized in the Lucretian embrace of beauty and pleasure, and propelled it forward uh, as a legitimate, worthy human pursuit. Uh, best uh, exemplified in the Renaissance, you say. And you say this is not just the arts. In fact, you, you say uh, it, it infuses Walter Raleigh's description of Guiana, Robert Burton's encyclopedic account of mental illness. I mean, the interesting thing is that the Lucretius's idea, let me take a step back, Tom. Lucretius's idea was that, look, the highest good, the highest value has to be the enhancement of pleasure for you and for, for, as, for as many creatures in the world as possible. He would extend it to animals as well. Uh, that is to say, it, it, it's not about the value, the, the ultimate value should be uh, the enhancement of pleasure. And though that may seem like a perfectly familiar idea, it actually was a threatening and disturbing idea in the culture that, that, that in a way had decided that pain and suffering were the source of the highest values. Uh, and so the idea that you would embrace pleasure, uh, that you would think it's not a violation of the truth, but an enhancement of the only thing, in fact, that, that would be the source of moral value in the world, that idea seemed uh, risky. And it was the Renaissance that, I think, looking back on it, was the period in which lots of people, not necessarily for philosophical reasons of the kind I'm describing, but lots of people seemed to have to be moved by the same notion. There's, there's a good reason why we think some of the greatest love poetry in the world, some of the greatest accounts of beauty in the world, uh, some of the greatest celebrations of pleasure in the world came in the Renaissance, as it recovers this idea. Uh, th- this idea of pleasure, I-, I think there might be a difference in how we look at it today in a popular conception and, and maybe how Lucretius looked at it. I think he was an admirer of Epic- Epicurus, right? Ep- if you say Epicurean, there is it, it, I think the connotation is indulgent, and verging toward hedonism. That's right, like overeating, for example. <laughs> no, Luc- Luc- Lucretius had, and indeed Luc- Epicurus had quite a different idea. By our standards, these people would have been extremely uh, ascetic in their tastes, limited, I mean, deliberately. The idea was that you, that, that pleasure, you, if, if you think that pleasure consists in having a gold-plated airplane, you've got to very major mistake in your head. I mean, you're you're going completely in the wrong direction. That pleasure should consist, first of all, in those things that enrich and enhance your calm, your inner life, uh, and also that enrich and enhance the lives of others in in enabling to to have a, uh, a more tranquil relation to the world, not to be uh, always groping, grabbing for more and more and more, that this is a, a recipe for, actually, for unhappiness, not for happiness. Uh, 
By the way, do you do you? I don't know if you have any Lucretius on hand. Uh, we've been talking all about him, but I wonder if you have any that you could read or recite. Uh, I can look if you or if okay. you <laughs> okay. want to give me a second. Uh, yes, um, yes, and and then after uh, that, uh, after that, um, I want to close where we began. Because I think this is a, this is a crux for many people in their lives, and that is this this fear of death, this contemplating death, and uh, maybe have you uh, after you read something, uh, go back and, and and talk a little more about what how how Lucretius worked this out. What is it? Well, I, I, maybe I, what I'll do is just I'll simply start by reading the very opening of uh, Lucretius's poem okay. uh, in a translation that was done by. Uh, in the 17th century by an English poet, John Dryden, but I think it still will, is, will still be comprehensible to your readers or your listeners. And it's, a, a, um, it's an invocation of the goddess Venus. The strange thing about Lucretius is he thought that the gods and goddesses uh, weren't interested in human beings. Uh, they were taking pleasure themselves in whatever realm they lived in. But he opens the poem with a, uh, with a prayer to Venus, the goddess of pleasure, delight uh, of humankind and gods above, parent of Rome, propitious queen of love, whose vital power air, earth, and sea supplies, and breeds whate'er is born beneath the rolling skies. For every kind, by thy prolific might, springs and beholds the region of the light. Thee, goddess, thee, the clouds and tempests fear, and that thy pleasing presence disappear. For thee the land in fragrant flowers is dressed, for thee the ocean smiles and smooths her wavy breast, and heaven itself with more serene and purer light is blessed. For Lucretius, this was uh, the vision, the vision of a, a universe ruled by the goddess of pleasure. <laughs> now that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I want to fit an email in before we close here. Uh, this is from Glenn. Glenn says, I remember a nice anecdote referring to the constant copying of manuscripts through the ages by hand. It goes like this. A young monk went up to his superior monk. The young monk was frantic. He says, I found an ancient man mistake in the manuscript that I've been copying. What is it? The superior says. Uh, the younger one says, it appears the mistake was made in the first copy from the original work. The word should be celebrate. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for that, Glenn. Celebrate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that, Glenn. Uh, just a couple of minutes left. Um, as I said, I want to end where we began. This is a correct. This was important for you, right? To growing up with your with your mother constantly worrying about uh, death, and uh, then you find uh, Lucretius. Um, wh what would you say at the end here about Lucretius's solution to this, you know, human problem? We all we all face. Uh, death. I mean, Lucretius uh, had, I think, a, a very powerful and persuasive vision of trying to make your life focused, and not only your own life, but the lives of those around you, both in the immediate world and the larger world, focused on, on this world and on pleasure, uh, in a deep sense, pleasure, not simply grasping frantically, but of, of trying to, to achieve a kind of uh, uh, stability and calm in relation to the world. In some ways, Lucretius is closer to uh, a Zen Buddhist than he is to a, a frantic overeater. Uh, and I, I myself very deeply respond to that. 
but having said that, Tom, I would I'd have to say um, that for all of his wisdom, um, part of Lucretius's claim that he makes to try to prove this point seems to me, in my own life, I'd have to confess somewhat unconvincing. He says uh, to his readers, "Look, um, the good news is that that when you die." you will simply cease to exist. Your, your atoms will return to the atoms of the universe and, and you won't exist any longer. Uh, there'll be nothing after your death. And already back in the ancient world, well before uh, Christianity, Cicero, who read Lucretius and admired him, basically said, this is the good news? This is no good news to know that you're not going to exist. This is the, whatever reassurance Lucretius thinks you're going to get from this. Uh, is only reassuring if you think you might be uh, forced to do some terrible suffering after death. But most people just want to continue. They can't face the idea that you're not going to continue at all. And I think for m- many of us uh, that it's not, I think now in the 21st century, it's not fear that we'll be roasting on, on some spit somewhere in the underworld. It's the desire to continue. It's the fear that you're simply going to vanish. And for that, I think Lucretius can offer relatively little uh, compensation, except to say, enjoy what you have, embrace what you have, love your, your loved ones, uh, and try to make the world as, uh, as pleasurable a place as you possibly can for everyone. It's a fascinating book, The Swerve, How the World Became Modern. It's winner of the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. We've had the author with us for the hour, Stephen Greenblatt. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, Objectified. We'll have a panel discussion. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.